Today is May 21st, 2021, and this is Let's Uncomplicate This, a CUBL podcast that talks about the news and current events from a consistent life ethic and anti-racist perspective. I'm your host, Marcia Lane McGee, and I am excited to bring to you more conversations with people who are definitely more knowledgeable than I on certain subjects. Today, we're talking about the life and dignity of the human person as it pertains to the CDC mask mandate and the recent execution of Quentin Jones. Joining me today to talk about these subjects are Ogechi O'Calibri and Destiny Hernan de la Rosa. Getchi, thank you so much for joining us today on Let's Uncomplicate This. So before we start, I want you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us um, what you do, like who you are, what you do, if you are a convert or a cradle Catholic. And also, I need to know what's your favorite thing about being Catholic. You have Thank you. <laughs> I um, My name is Ogechi. I grew up and I live in Gaithersburg, Maryland. I am a cradle Catholic. I am proud to be one of the board members for CUBL, and in my day job, I am a Christian service coordinator, as well as a public speaker and a podcaster. My favorite thing about being Catholic would definitely be the Eucharist. I think that it it is the source and summit of our faith, but being able to receive the Eucharist in churches all over whenever I travel is amazing, and knowing that the mass is the same, even though the flavor might be different. And wherever I travel and finding finding a home in the church in those spaces is is my favorite thing about the church and being I'm Catholic. I'm a Eucharist stan. I'm just saying <laughs> I'm all about it. <laughs> Today, we are going to be talking about the CDC mass guidelines that have just kind of been announced and um, I feel like they've been changing in like rapid fire succession. Would you agree? Yes. Like, and that's yes. kind of like how it was. It's um, how at the beginning of the pandemic, like what, 14 months ago, it was kind of like um, once it was like once there were masks, it was like boom, 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 boom. This is where you wear your mask and how you wear your mask. And now mm-hmm. it's like the demasking is like it was slow and then boom, 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 boom. So Yes. It felt we sudden. Like we went to bed and we woke up with this new man. And I'm like, wait a minute. No warning. I don't know time. I know time. Like, and I- it's, it's almost like, do you know those little, um, there, I recently on Instagram, I saw this thing, like, should this meeting be an email? And it was like, yes, no. And you go down the, the graphic. It's like, do you wear a mask at an airport? And no, because like, I mean, yes, because it's the airport, duh. And then, like, do you wear a mask going to the grocery store? Yes, but no, if the store says no. It's, like, it's very yeah. confusing. It's how it was when we first were wearing masks. Yes. So, <laughs> I'm not kidding. Oh, so now it's, like, we, now it's, like, hey, you don't have to wear a mask to go into a store. You're, like, woohoo, freedom. But I feel naked. Um, yes, <laughs> it feels so weird. Um I mean, the first time I took my mask off to eat among people and I just kept it off while I ate, it felt so foreign and weird. But um, 
now we have to navigate this new normal and there's a lot of complicated emotions and statistics to go through and make that choice for yourself um just like it was back then you said the buzzword there are a lot of complicated (laughs) emotions yes and statistics so ogechi let's uncomplicate this let's talk about these mask up guidelines so the CDC has al- has always been just there to give us guidelines. You can listen to the guidelines or not. Um, just like the CDC had guidelines earlier in the pandemic and states use those guidelines to make these mask mandates or policies. And so now we see states rolling back. Some states did it prior to the CDC guidance, but we're seeing more and more jurisdictions doing that. Um, Generally, this benefits those only that are vaccinated. And that's what they've said. Vaccinated people can wear, can be unmasked inside, outside, in all most situations. Um, there are some exceptions, and they list that, which can make it a little complicated. Um, so we're going to un- uncomplicate that. But generally, because we're less likely to get COVID and die from the virus, they see the risk of not wearing a mask so minimal that they're they are giving us that guidance. However, on the other hand, there are a large number of people that are unvaccinated. The whole country hasn't been vaccinated and we haven't reached herd immunity, herd immunity. And herd immunity means that we've gotten to the point where so many people are vaccinated that the virus is generally very minimal, much like you know measles is, polio is, Um, and even other vaccines that you probably don't realize you get as a young person. We don't see that often because we've achieved herd immunity. Mm -hmm. Um, We're not there yet. So people that are unvaccinated are still at risk. Um, And people that are unvaccinated that choose not to wear a mask are at a greater risk. So we are relying on the honor policy, as Dr. Fauci said, to trust that people that are unvaccinated are going to comply and continue to wear masks and knowing that if they don't, their risk is increased. Um, Statistically, this affects frontline workers, essential workers, anyone that comes in close contact with uh, customers and clients daily. My sister is actually one of those. She works at an eyeglasses store. So she literally has to be up close and personal with people and, um, she is going to have to continue to wear a mask because of what her company says, that customers can come in unmasked and she has no idea knowing if they're vaccinated or not. They can say they are, but I I don't think everybody can 100% trust their neighbor. And there's, speaking of trust, there's a lot of distrust in the government. And so we've seen a very low vaccination rate in communities of color, specifically black communities. And this is, valid. Uh, We were talking about this earlier, that there's a history of distrust of the government when it comes to medicine because of the atrocities that have happened in the past. So this data is as of May 17th. So if you want to find the most current, you can always go to the CDC website and look at their COVID statistics. But they break down the race and ethnicity of people receiving the COVID-19 vaccine. And so people who have received at least one dose of the vaccine, so not fully vaccinated unless they got the Johnson & Johnson, so they could be half vaccinated, but people that received just one dose, that would be 62% of the population. 
And uh, that, I'm sorry, that would be 60, 62% of them are white, 9% of them are black, 13 Hispanic, six Asian, and then there's a further breakdown in Native American and other races and ethnicity breakdowns. But that 9% of black is a little disheartening. And then- um, Well, really quick we, before yes. we go on, um, that data, it we, they only have the racial breakdown of only 56% of the people who mm -hmm, received the mm -hmm. vaccine. So that's more than half of the people they know for sure what their race is. And that's the breakdown of it. Like the 62% were white, 9% black. And it's like, that is an overwhelming majority of people who are white that got the vaccine. I wanted to do kind of like, since I live in the DMV area, looking at the statistics in the District of Columbia for black, uh, they break it down, black, Hispanic, Asian, and white. So mm -hmm. for the black population in DC, um, 31 percent of they are responsible of 31 percent of the vac vaccinations. They're also responsible for 55 percent of cases and 70 percent of deaths related to COVID-19. Wow. Now, blacks in D.C. only make up 46 percent of the total population. So with the death rate, you see the disproportionate effects of how the virus can really do damage to the community. And so it's even more important because we have a higher death rate than every other population to get our community vaccinated. There have been a lot of efforts in DC and in many other states, especially Atlanta and um, even rural areas where their access to these programs might be harder to um, get, but the numbers are still dwindling and in every column almost every column, the death rate versus the population rate is higher for Blacks in those states. So what do we do for to solve this, right? Right. One of the things that I want to point out to our listeners is that I was just having this conversation with someone else about D.C. This was yesterday. Um, someone was saying, oh, yeah, so-and-so grew up in D.C. And I said, and I was like, I think that you need to understand that people who grew up in DC area, they are more most likely going to be black, right? Mm -hmm. Not living in growing up because the DC area is the hood. Yes. And those uh, communities that are less affluent in DC are yes. tight, more tightly, like they are denser. Yes. You are right on top of each other. And so that is a part of the reason why the death rate is so much higher because of the closeness and just yes. jobs that people have in that community. Yeah. Um, but knowing all of those risks and the higher death rate, it still ha hasn't changed the fact that so many people are hesitant to get the vaccine in the black community, not just in DC, but around the country. And yes. like we said before, there's a history related to that mistrust of the government. Tell us a little bit more about that. So um, in the past, there have been medical errors or uh, like in unethical ways that the medical industry have treated multiple populations of color, but particularly the black population. And I think the most popular example given is the Tuskegee experiment where there were a group of men that had syphilis and they were basically 
left to have the disease progress. And they were using that progression of the disease to test how it affects the brain for science purposes to see what the disease does in the brain. They never received treatment. In fact, they were lied to and told not to trust that penicillin, which was the preferred treatment at the time, could solve that, um, could cure them. Because as you know, some people can be allergic to penicillin. So they used that to dissuade people from seeking treatment. And so this study went on for many years and it was funded by the US government. And yes. so that along with the instances of um, euthana uh, euthanasia in prisons and by social service programs of women that were in jail or women that received a lot of government assistance over the many years in this country, along with just the fact that the origin of gynecology came from the misuse of, of yes. slave women, enslaved women's bodies, science has not had a great history when it comes to Black American No, at all. And I want to go back to the Tuskegee syphilis study again, where it was 600 men and they were all poor sharecroppers. And most of them did have, have syphilis, right? But there was a control group that didn't. Um, and they basically, it was like, do this study and you will get free medical care. And that's what it was. It was, they were like, okay. And it was only supposed to be six months of their lives. Um, and the thing about it was the, they lost the funding. Like they no longer had the funding, but they continued with the study. And that is why they convinced them not to receive treatment because they couldn't provide the treatment. They couldn't provide anything. They got no, um, compensation for their time and for their health. Um, and so that's kind of what happened. And it was, and I think, like, I think it was that the government kind of turned a blind eye to like, this is still happening. They absolutely knew it was still happening because any understanding that we have of syphilis and how to treat it is because of those black men. Yes. Um, yes. And they were used as guinea pigs. Um, and they were, like, they were used for purely experimental purposes. Um, and so it went on for 40 years. That's the thing where it's like, it, it ended, it was like 1932 to 1972, right? And then mm -hmm. they finally were like, oh, like it finally, there was finally some intervention. They're like, we got to shut it down, right? And then um, it wasn't until 1979 where they, like what, five years later, seven years later, they were able to be like, okay, this is everything that we know about it. And this was awful. And so this is, it's, it's a recent part of our history. Like, yeah, I, I was born in 1979. It's so recent. And yeah. God forbid we hear of other instances that may have been brushed under the rug that we don't know about yet. But this current history, that means that you were alive when uh, not too far away from when this happened. Our like yes. grandparents, aunts, uncles, parents were alive then, so they know the history and they know the stories, and it's hard to unlearn that mistrust in the medical industry, and then top that off with other areas of mistrust of the government in general, as it relates to Black people in this country. And you have a really hard job uh, from a public health perspective to encourage these communities to take advantage of this free vaccine. There's no cost. They've come to community centers, apartment buildings, to schools, to areas of worship to try to build trust. They've had athletes, politicians, singers. I mean, 
so many things have been done, but the numbers still show that the rate is still low. And so for the CDC guidance to come out at this time, where the rate is still so low in Black communities, really highlights that the, the benefit is really and the privilege of not having this, this historical mistrust and taking the leap of faith to take the vaccine. This those that have not done it yet. Say it like there's no way right now, like currently the people who are most vulnerable, mm-hmm. the most vulnerable among the most vulnerable are the ones in the distrust. Yes. And, and, and people forget really that children, children are included, children and people with autoimmune issues are included in this yes. unvaccinated population. So if you don't say you don't care about black lives, that is still a population that needs to be valued. And I understand that many people think that children are almost immune to this disease, which is very much not true. Children can still pass it on, they can still get it. And we see the rates of children in hospitals because of COVID are increasing because they're the ones that are like going back to school and doing all of those activities, which is fun, but the precaution still needs to happen. And I know many people that are not able to get the vaccine because of their medical history and allergies and their immunocompromised state. And so their lives have value. And what does it say to dismiss them just in the effort to move the country along and put us back to normal? If we ignore all of these things, um, we are still doing harm. Yeah, our so this is where I'm at. I feel that with these mask mandates as they are right. Or the lifting of the mandates Mm -hmm. are making already comfortable people more comfortable Mm -hmm. and are continuing to provide discomfort people to people who are already uncomfortable. Exactly. (laughs) That's exactly it. And I think sometimes we see the argument, well, we're supposed to follow the science and science has said that you can take off your mask. So if I am as a fully vaccinated person wants to keep my mask on, am I saying I don't believe in science? I'm making a calculated moral decision on my part. And also I'm also trying to uncomplicate my life by just following as it has been. I don't have to do the mental gymnastics of figuring out, am I in this space? Is this restaurant accepted or not? Restaurant, is this store? Yes or no? How do I know if everybody is vaccinated or not? I can just trust that at this time I don't have to. I I don't have to make any changes. I can continue to follow the course. Also, um, the decision to choose to continue to wear a mask does no harm for someone else. It it really might only discomfort me, but mm-hmm. it really doesn't implicate someone else's health status. But the decisions that people have made in the past to not want to wear masks, to make demonstrations, protesting mask mandates, all it does is potentially harm someone else. And so my choice to continue to wear a mask, even though the CDC has this guidance, does not, in my opinion, create a moral um, harm. It doesn't doesn't harm someone and doesn't risk put those that are unvaccinated at risk either (laughs) so with that that's where that's where we stand with it right and then when we're talking specifically about dignity i think that's where we are with the mask mandate i think that there's there's dignity in that like we owe each other dignity yes and i feel that as we 
try to navigate these new mandates or non-mandates or, you know, are we doing masks or are we not? I think that it would be quite undignified to assume that someone has the same privilege as we do and continue to make sure that when we're in public spaces, and this is not like, I'm not trying to preach like wear your mask all the time, but I think it's when the decisions that we make can very much affect the life of a human person and it can affect whether or not we preserve their dignity. And I think that, um, like you said, like there are so many populations that aren't, um, that, that aren't ready. You know what I mean? They're not ready for this jelly. Like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and that's why certain states and counties are taking their time. Even if the state changes it, certain counties are take, taking their time because they, they know their communities and hopefully they're advocating for those most vulnerable mm-hmm. in their communities. And that's where we are. We have to advocate for the most vulnerable and, uh, we, we recognize, we've seen the effects of COVID. Like we don't know, we, there's some people who got COVID and they don't understand how they got it. Right. Yes. They're like, that still can happen. Additionally, right? there are people that are fully vaccinated that have still gotten COVID. Yes. Had the Yankees, they got, they're all fully vaccinated and eight of their players or seven of their players um, tested positive for COVID. Bill mm-hmm. Mayer, he tested positive for COVID, fully vaccinated. Um, I have a friend of mine, her father is in the hospital, tested positive for COVID, fully vaccinated. So the risk isn't zero. It's just, just less. less. And I think in an effort to push the country forward and celebrate this quote unquote end of the pandemic, we are leaving behind the people that we have been exposed to the inequities that they experienced. We saw how lack of access to technology was dis- was disparate ar- among populations of people. We saw how black people and Hispanic people were dying at a higher rate from COVID. So we knew we know all the inequities that exist, but we can't just like ignore it and pretend we don't see it as we try to move forward and success and celebrate our own success as people that may have gotten the vaccine or are totally over COVID and ignore the, the stats and ignore those that are vulnerable that remain in our communities. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's it. Like, there's nothing else to add. <laughs> I think that we need to remember that. Like if we're going to be consistent life ethic, mm-hmm. if we are going to be anti-racist, we have to recognize these things. And I know some people are kind of tired of hearing about, oh my gosh, all mask, oh vaccine, all this. And it's like, we have to understand each other a little bit better and understand where we're coming from and and uncomplicated, if you will. Yes. (laughs) So I got you. Thank you so much for helping us uncomplicate how this mask mandate directly um, affects the black community, black and brown community, but specifically the black community. Um, Thank you so much for your insight and for your knowledge. And, um, and this conversation, this is a great conversation. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. <laughs> um, Ogechi, where can we find you? I am Getch Me If You Can on Instagram. That's G-E-C-H-M-E-I-F-Y-O-U-C-A-N. And I'm also there on Twitter and Facebook. So you can find me there. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks for being on Let's Uncomplicate This. We will have you back on the show again. Thank you so much. <laughs> have a great day. <laughs>
Destiny Hernandela Rosa. Welcome to Let's Uncomplicate This. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Great. Destiny, tell us about yourself. I usually ask guests to tell us about themselves, tell about if they are Catholic, are cradle Catholic, or converted to Catholicism, and their favorite thing about Catholicism. So you answer that question any way that you can. Yeah, so I'm very... <laughs> very Catholic. Um, I'm basically the Pope. I'm the most Catholic person you've ever had on here. (laughs) (laughs) No, not Catholic at all. Uh, So I'm agnostic, uh, but I love Catholics. I hang around them pretty much every day, but Sunday. Um, I run a group called New Wave Feminist, which is a consistent life ethic group. Um, And yeah, I have purple hair. I don't know. I think that's all I've got that's interesting. I I don't think it is. You are the go-to consistent life ethic feminist there is I mean I don't just say that because you know you're one of my very good friends but one of my best friends in fact um but I say that because you know you know a lot so the purple hair is interesting but it's not the best thing about you well I'm I'm glad to hear that I'm the go-to um I've invested zero dollars in SEO type stuff to be the go-to so it's just who (laughs) you know it's what amazing phenomenal women you know who want to have you on their podcast so I'm (laughs) I'm glad that I became the go-to, especially to talk about the death penalty today. That's, that is our topic today. Yes, we're going to talk about the death penalty, specifically the execution, the most recent execution of two days ago of Quentin Jones. Um, he is a man. He's from he's from Texas. Um, and Destiny, what I, I don't know, have you been closely following? Were you closely following the case? Um, yeah, and unfortunately, there's a lot of cases here in my home state. Um of the very pro-life Texas where we tend to kill a lot of people. Awful, right? It's awful when you're from a state that in the morning signs abortion restrictions and then in the evening like executes a man. And so we just see this like extreme inconsistency with life. And the thing that I think made Quentin Jones's case um, kind of fascinating to so many people is he was asking Governor Greg Abbott for clemency and even had a lot of family members because this was uh, a homicide within his family. He had actually yes. killed his his great aunt while he was on drugs and trying to borrow money from her and ended up beating her to death. And it was horrific. And so the New York Times did a piece on him that he's not innocent but he still doesn't deserve to die for this, right? Because there's so many things that we believe as consistent life ethicists where, you know, we're, we're talking about somebody's a monster and so they should be put to death, but then who becomes the monster when that happens, right? And that's what we see a lot of is um, even in cases where the family will say, please don't do this. Like he can serve out a life sentence. Like he is being punished. There is a consequence for what has happened, but it doesn't need to be, us becoming the monsters ourselves and taking a human life, innocent or not innocent. And even with all of that, um, he, he did not receive clemency and he was put to death on Wednesday. And something unusual, they are claiming there was a communication error. There were press that were invited to come, like there were media, they were invited and no one was there. There were no, there was no one from the media there. Um, yeah, there were there were two journalists who were supposed to be let in and they just whoops, yes. forgot to let him in. Yeah. And I don't understand. You know, that that's kind of um, that's really odd. Like that seems like quite the communication error. Um, yeah, and that's a that's a big, me- you know, misstep there. And of course, 
his case had gotten more press because we had 10 months of basically um, death penalty cases, executions being put on hold because of COVID and every, I mean, there's just, there's bigger, I was going to say fish to fry, but that sounds wrong, but like there's bigger things to deal with at this point. And yet we've got, you know, the executions ramping back up. Texas is opening back up all the way. Evictions are starting again. Like basically all the horrible stuff that we got this little reprieve from during a horrible pandemic uh, started back up again. And so he did get more media coverage. And I think that that probably had something to do with this little, you know, I'm using air, air quotes, accidental oversight of journalists being allowed in. In one, in one of the, well, I read a couple of things about him in the, last few days and the days leading up to it and things like that, his lawyer um, definitely believes, he said that this was a, this was definitely a race issue. The fact that he didn't get clemency. Um, And he basically was saying like, you know, um, there was, there's a case of, I guess, Thomas Whitaker and he was a white man and he, in um, the same state, the same review board, he, um, he was convicted of killing his, his wife and his brother um and his case was reprieved he found reprieve in the same review board and quentin jones did not get it um and he believes that it was racially motivated um in texas well i'm going to read you this quote really quick and then i have a next question for you he said the lack of consistency in the application for grounds for clemency clemency where clemency was recommended and granted for whitaker who was white and rejected for mr jones who is black presents a legally cognizable claim that Mr. Jones's race played an impermissible role in the board's denial of his application for clemency. So he said that in his court filing. In Texas right now, of all the people that are awaiting uh, capital punishment in some way, like, is it an overwhelming, do you, have you seen that? Like, is there an overwhelming amount of black men and women um, that are like, waiting to die over white men and women, or have you seen more of a, cause I don't have any evidence to go on, or have you seen more white people find reprieve? Yeah, that? well, we know for a fact that it's disproportionate to people who end up on death row because it often has to do with income issues. Um, and the fact that when it comes to legal counsel and everything else, the people who end up on death row are already kind of marginalized populations. And so sister, uh, Helen Prejean actually has a great quote where she says, the death penalty is fundamentally a poor person's issue. Over nearly 40 million years of visiting death row facilities across the United States, I've never met a single person with money or resources. And then this is the line that gets me, capital punishment means those without the capital get the punishment. And so when we look at it from a systemic perspective, and even if you go and check out Innocence Project, right, and the number of people who have actually been exonerated, uh, innocent people who are on death row, they are overwhelmingly people of color. And so we know for a fact that there is obviously a very broken system here that is putting people behind bars, is giving them, you know, um, death penalty, and yet they're not getting the full representation and defense that they need. So you are going to see that. And the fact that I believe that was the one reprieve that Abbott made in like four years. Uh, He does not hand them out often, but yes, it ended up being, you know, a white person versus a black person. Like, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to look into there. I think there's also other elements though of, you know, certain things where it's an election year or the fact that we just had this, horrific snowstorm here in Texas where people were literally dying because they were without power for, you know, a full week. And 
Greg Abbott is playing politics and wants to get people to stop thinking about that. And so when you have a voting base that is very pro-capital punishment, um, which Texas used to be, I will say it is actually the, the general populace is actually changing on this because they're starting to see it for what it is. But this becomes literally like a, a carrot that he, he's putting out there to try to get people over on his side again. And so I think that there are a lot of elements, but at its core, when we look at the death penalty and the good that it does, and we realize it is more expensive, it does not serve as a deterrent in any way, and we are completely capable of keeping people incarcerated where they are not in any way a threat to the general public. Like, it is such an antiquated thing. I think it is something we will look back on you know, in the future and be horrified that we ever thought this was necessary because at the end of the day, it is for revenge. And I would say, especially in red states, it is much easier to wheel that out to to garner favor from people when it's people of color, because it's easy to other them. It's easy, easy to dehumanize them because they don't look like you. And so you don't have to worry about ever ending up on death row. You have the means that you would be able to access a good attorney and quality counsel, these other people don't. And I think what we have to realize is these are all human beings and these are all people struggling. And especially in Quentin Jones' case, I mean, he was part of a drug drug ec- epidemic and succumbed you know, to a lot of systemic issues when it comes to poverty. That does not in any way justify anything that happened. But I think you have to take the totality of that in when realizing this was a young man who has spent 20 something years on death row is not a danger to anyone now. Why Why did we need his blood? What, what was the purpose of that? And I think you get into some really questionable places of, of why it was that this particular piece of political theater needed to play out the way that it did. Yeah. I like you said that political theater, like it's all the show and we're like, gosh, it's black and brown bodies that are, that are getting destroyed because of it. Okay. Well, Destiny, thank you. Um, thank you for that perspective. Thank you for understanding how, like all the things that you said, I was like, I didn't realize that it was cheaper to not, like, I, you know what I mean? I thought it was a financial issue. So they really have no argument. No, no, no it's not. I mean, even if you're, yeah, if you're the most fiscally conservative person, it is much more expensive to have someone on death row because of the appeals and all of the, the other courtroom expenses you have to go through than it is to feed and house them for 70 years. You know, I mean, there, there really is just no reason that this still exists in a civilized society other than revenge. And when you even have, when you even have the family saying, we don't want this. Yeah. I mean, why are we ignoring the very people who were the victims? Yes. And yeah, his, um, his great uncle, I believe, which is Bernice's brother, the woman that he murdered, he was like, we're good. Like, can we, can we, he did write a whole hardened, like appeal. Um, Yeah. And I believe, I believe her sister also was in communication with him and trying to help him get on the right path. And they, they don't want this. And that is another thing that sister Helen Prejean talks about is the fact that in a lot of these very public cases, you see families that, you know, maybe are pacifists or disagree with the death penalty and they don't want, um, 
even this person who maybe is not related to them in a lot of cases, but did something horrific to one of their family members, they do not want to pursue the death penalty. And the court of public opinion basically goes after them and says, you must not have really loved your daughter or, you know, sister, mother. Mm -hmm. Uh, if, If you're not out for blood, then clearly you don't really, you didn't really love them. And I think that that is such a perversion of justice and what it is and what forgiveness is and the ability for people to say, what happened was horrific. I'm not going to participate in another act of violence because that's not going to bring the person back. Desi, thank you so much for being a part of this episode, helping us uncomplicate why the dignity of life is so important from womb to tomb um, and why Clinton Jones did not deserve to die. Thank you so much for being on Let's Uncomplicate This Destiny. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Have a great day. Bye. You too. Well, there we have it. That's the show, friends. But I would be remiss if I didn't leave you with a bit of Black Joy. Unfortunately, this week's installment of Black Joy is tinged with pain. In doing my story, well, my segment with Destiny, I had a chance to read Quentin Jones's last words. And in his last words, they remind us that we all seek freedom from pain. We all seek redemption. We all seek purpose. We have established that he was very much guilty and justice was deserved. In his last words, he shares with us how he feels he left this world. And I think it's how we all feel we should leave this world. He says, I would like to thank all of the supporting people who have helped me over the years. I was so glad to leave this world a better, more positive place. It's not an easy life with all the negativities. Love all my friends and all the friendships that I have made. They are like the sky. It is all a part of life, like a big, full plate of food for the soul. I hope I left everyone a plate of food full of happy memories, happiness, and no sadness. A big, full plate of food for the soul. Quentin Jones knew what he did was wrong. Quentin Jones knew that there was still more life for him to live. Quentin Jones knew that he did not want to die. And I feel like we all know that he should not have. But the words that he left us will help us to be more joyful, more purposeful, and more intentional in how we see our place in this world. Thank you for listening to Let's Uncomplicate This. We will see you next time.